0: Morning's text is from Ephesians five, fifteen through twenty one. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making Melody to the Lord with your heart Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ Let's pray Father, I agree with the words of that song And I pray that your glory would descend upon us now And I pray that simultaneously you would exalt your glory in our eyes Father, we don't need a slick service this morning. We need to encounter the living Jesus Christ this morning. Each of us is in a different place in our lives, but each of our needs is precisely the same. We must have God. We must have eyes to see You. We must have hearts that can grasp You and want to pursue You. So I pray indeed that Your glory would descend upon us now, Lord, and that You would capture our hearts. How I pray that we would turn our eyes on Jesus now and look full in His wonderful face. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Lord, just as when we stare into the sun and then we look away and, and we're blind, we can't see other things now, I pray that we would look into the eyes of the Son, Jesus Christ, so that other things would fade away and we would be enthralled with You and captured by You and our hearts would be filled with the hope that one day we will see You face to face, Lord Jesus, and we will be like You, for we will see You as You are. Oh, please come now, Lord, as I preach Your Word as faithfully as I can. Let Your glory descend upon us. And let your glory be exalted among us, I pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Our Lord, our God, our Rock, our Redeemer, our gracious God and Friend. In your great name we pray these things. Amen. As I have been saying for the last couple of weeks now, I. View Ephesians five fifteen through twenty one as Paul's way of giving body and shape to the commands that he gave us in verses eight through twelve, namely that we who are in Christ, we who are believers in Jesus and followers of Him, that we ought to walk as children of light, and that we ought not take any part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather we should expose them. And specifically, I see Paul giving us four bits of advice as to what it looks like to walk as children of light. Number one, in verse 15, we ought to look carefully how we walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Number two, in verse 16, we ought to make the best use of the time because the days are evil. Number three, in verse 17, we ought not be foolish, but rather understand what the will of the Lord is. And then finally, in verse 18, We ought not be drunk with wine, but rather be filled with the Holy Spirit. That is, in part, a picture of what it looks like to walk as children of light. And last week we began talking about this third bit of advice, namely that we ought not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And I told you that this week I would spend some time talking about how we actually go about discerning the will of God in our lives. And that is what I plan to do. And from the outset... Let me just say out loud what I think we all know to be true, and that is that I'm no expert on this subject. The subject of the will of God is vast, and in some ways it's complicated, and I would be a fool, I would be a hypocrite to stand here and say to you that I've understood all the mysteries of it and that I've solved all the problems having to do with it. I don't and I haven't, but I have been walking with Christ for some time over 21 years now by His grace. And I have been studying the Bible and thinking about these things, and so I do think I have a few things to share. So please receive what I have today, not as the conclusions of an expert, but as the musings of a brother in Christ, just trying to understand our Father together with you. With that, I want to reiterate this morning a few key points from last week, and I want to add one new preliminary point, And then I want to deal directly with the question, how do we go about discerning the will of God? Number one, There is an important distinction to be made between God's will of decree and God's will of command. When the Bible uses this term, the will of God, it doesn't always mean it in the same way. And it's crucial for us to make this distinction between His will of decree and His will of command. His will of decree refers to His sovereign rule over all things. And it does imply that in one sense, God wills everything that does happen to happen. Even things that He abhors even things He condemns, even things that grieve His heart. God's will of decree is always accomplished, and it can never be broken. As it says in Ephesians 1.11, God works all things, all things, according to the counsel of His will. And those two words, all things, mean just that. They mean all things. Nothing escapes the sovereign will of God. So there is a sense in which this phrase, the will of God, refers to the unstoppable, unbreakable purposes of our Father for this world. God's will of command, on the other hand, refers to what we might call God's moral will or His revealed will. And as I shared with you last week, the early 20th century pastor and scholar A.W. Pink describes God's will of command like this. He calls it God's revealed will. God's revealed will is the definer of our duty and the standard of our responsibility. The primary and basic reason why I should follow a certain course or do a certain thing is because it's God's will that I should, His will being clearly defined for me in His Word. But here lies the problem. Even though God's will is clearly defined for us in His Word, and even though we read in many places that God's will cannot be broken, we know that His will of command is broken every day, right? We know that people steal and kill and murder. I suppose killing and murdering are the same thing. We know that they lust. We know that they do all kinds of things God has said not to do. So there is a sense in which this phrase, the will of God, refers to some things that can be broken and are, in fact, broken every day of the week. The way that I reconcile these twin facts, that God's will cannot be broken and that God's will is in fact broken every single day, is to say that in God's sovereign will over all things, He has deemed it right and wise and best to let some of His commands be broken. He has willed that to be. And the reason He's created the world to be this way is because He deemed it best to fully display His glory for all to see. And the display of the fullness of the glory of God is the ultimate purpose of all creation. And our Father thinks that this kind of world, where His commands, in a sense, can be broken, is the best kind of world to display the fullness of who He is. This reconciliation of the meanings of the will of God may or may not be satisfying to you, but I promise you that in that final day when you have eyes to see as your Father has eyes to see now, it will make sense to you and it will be satisfying to you and you will worship your Father forever and ever and His wisdom and His mercy and His justice in doing things just the way that He did things. And you will see along with Him that there was literally no other world that could better display His glory and give us joy in His glory than the world that He created. And so for now, we live by faith. Now, when Paul commands us in Ephesians 5.17 to understand the will of God, what kind of will is he talking about? Is he calling us to understand God's sovereign will over all things? Or is he calling us to understand God's moral or revealed will? And as I said last week, I think it's obvious that he's calling us to understand the moral or the revealed will of God. Because in the preceding verses, he's been warning us away from things like sexual immorality and sensuality and covetousness and unfruitful works of darkness. And so when he says, understand the will of God, I think his meaning's pretty clear. Understand the difference between darkness and light and choose the light. You are children of light in Christ, so live like it, walk like it. Understand the good pleasures of your Father for your life and follow Him. Paul is not calling us to grasp things that are beyond our reach. He's calling us to grasp things that God has made clear and plain. And that leads us to point number two from last week. God is not playing hide and go seek with us. When He commands us to understand His will, He implies that His will is discernible and it's comprehensible and it's doable. He's not hidden Himself from us. He's not hidden His will or His ways from us. As He said to Moses in Deuteronomy 30, which we read last week, For this commandment I command you today is not too hard from you for you, Neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend into heaven and bring it down to us, that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? But the Word is very near you. It is in your mouth and it is in your heart so that you can do it. Friend, when you are seeking the will of God in your life, You must tell yourself over and over and over again, God is not hiding from me. God has put His will out there for me to see. And if I will strive for it, then I will find it because my Father is gracious. It just seems crucial to me that we emblaze this lesson on our minds and not let the flesh or others tell us otherwise. Number three, and this I did not share last week, when we seek the will of God, we are not mainly seeking data from God. We are seeking the heart of our Father for a given situation. Seeking the will of God is not the impersonal pursuit of information. It is quite the opposite. The very personal pursuit of the good pleasures of our Father for our lives. Seeking the will of God is profoundly relational, both in its means and in its ends in the process by which we discover his will and in the actual outcomes of walking in his will in fact i would go so far as to say that the main design of god in causing us to seek his will for our lives is not discerning the information about what we should do or where we should go the main design of god is that our faith in him would grow and that our love for him would grow and that our love for one another would grow. The process of seeking God's will is profoundly relational. God is not just trying to get information to you. He's trying to build a relationship with you as a beloved child of His in Christ. Please look with me at Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2. Paul said, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. If you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, then the Bible tells you that you are a beloved child of God and all the affections that the Father has for the Son, He now has for you who are in the Son. He loves you. And He wants you to know Him. And He wants you to know His ways. And He wants you to understand how to walk in His ways. And this is why I say, seeking the will of God is profoundly relational. Because in the end, it's about discovering God. When we find Him, for He has promised that everyone who seeks Him will find Him. Our Father will make His will clear to us in His time and His way. But as I said, the main thing He will do along the way is forge a better, deeper, more loving, more passionate relationship between us and Him. And how I pray that we will emblaze this lesson on our mind as well. If you are pursuing the will of God, remember that essentially you are pursuing God. And it's Him that He wants to give you and not just information about your life. Finally, number four, when Paul commands us to understand the will of the Lord, that word understand implies work. It implies labor. It implies effort. In the Greek, it literally means to bring things together. But more figuratively, it means to perceive something clearly or to employ one's capacities for understanding and thus to arrive at insight. And how crucial it is for us to grasp this. Because sometimes when we're frustrated with God and not being able to understand His will, sometimes it's because we've not applied ourselves and employed the faculties that He's given us necessary to discern His will. Sometimes we're like a farmer who isn't in the mood to go out and pick the fruit off the trees, but he sits in his farmhouse and laments that he has no fruit to sell and he has no fruit to eat. And what else could he expect, right? If you do all the planting and do all the watering, but you don't pick the fruit, you don't get the fruit to sell or to eat. And the truth is that sometimes we're like that farmer. We don't want to do the work. We don't want to put in the effort, and yet we want the benefits of having done the work. But it doesn't work that way. If we truly want to understand the will of God, then we're going to have to work to understand the will of God. God has not hidden Himself from us, but He has designed it so that we have to put forth some effort. In discerning His will. And I think there are reasons for that that we'll talk about maybe some other time. With that, I want to spend the rest of our time this morning talking about this labor and let me just put it in the form of a question. How do we discern the will of God? Or what are the key components of this labor of understanding the will of God? And will you please turn with me to Romans 12 verses 1 through 2? I don't know of another place in the Bible that is clearer with us about how we are to go about discerning the will of God. And so that's why I want to go here and, and use this as the outline for the rest of our time this morning. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I see three crucial insights here for understanding His will. Number one, if we're to understand the will of God, we must not be conformed to this world. Two, if we're to understand the will of God, we must be transformed by the renewal of our minds. And finally, number three, if we're to understand the will of God, we must employ our transformed minds to test all things and to discern His will. So let's just talk about each of these in turn. Number one, don't be conformed to this world. In the Greek language, the root of the word conformed means to fashion something by using a shaped container. So in other words, it means to pour something into a mold. And then whatever it is that you poured into that mold takes on the shape of the mold. And what Paul is saying to us here is, do not be poured into the mold of the world. Do not let yourself be made into the image of the world. Do not value what the world values. Do not think as they think. Do not feel as they feel. Do not act as they act. Do not make decisions in the way that the world makes decisions. And the main reason that we ought not be conformed to the world is because we who are in Christ have been radically transformed by Christ. And it just doesn't make sense for us anymore to be like the world. As I said a few weeks ago when we were talking about the fact that we're no longer darkness, but we're now light in the Lord. To be light in the Lord does not mean that there's no darkness left in you. It doesn't mean that there's no worldliness left in you. But it does mean that your essential nature has been changed forever. You are no longer darkness. You are light in Christ. And it just doesn't make sense anymore for us to walk in the darkness or to let ourselves be poured into the mold of the world. Before we knew Christ, it made perfect sense. What else should we do? This was all we had. But now that we've been born again to a new and a living hope, it just doesn't make sense anymore for us. So don't be conformed to the things of this world. If you'll turn with me, please, to 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 13 through 16. And I just want to go here because this is the only other place in the whole Bible where this particular word for conformed is used. And I think that it will help us to understand specifically what Paul is warning us against. We'll look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully on that day when as a child of God, you will see Him face to face and you will be made more perfectly into His image. And then verse 14, as obedient children, beloved obedient children, Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. As the children of a glorious Father who considers us beloved, we're simply being called to obedience. We're simply being called to do what our Father asks us to do and not to pour ourselves into the mold of our former patterns of ignorance. We did these things because we didn't know any better. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. But now we've been made alive together with Christ and we have eyes to see if we'll use them. And God is saying, don't go there anymore. Forsake these things. And instead, be holy in all that you do because your Father is holy. And how I pray that you hear what Peter's saying there. When he says, be holy as God is holy, most of us probably hear that as a burden, right? You you act like God. You be holy as God is holy. Well, that's an easy to do for today, right? Go home, be holy as God is holy. But I don't think Peter means for us to hear it as a burden. I think he means for us to hear it as an invitation. Just like Paul said in in Ephesians five one, be imitators of God. Imitate your father. When I was a little boy, everything my daddy did I wanted to do, I wanted to be just like my father. And that's what Peter and Paul are inviting us to do as well. And the hope of that invitation is that if the Bible's inviting you to that, it must be possible. It must be possible for you to imitate your Father and be holy as He is holy. And believe me, if we will walk in those paths, there is joy unspeakable waiting there for us. And why would you deny yourself that joy by indulging in the patterns of your former ignorance? Why would you do that? He's saying don't. Just don't do it. Do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to the patterns, the passions of your former ignorance. Now, what has this to do with discerning the will of God for our lives? And I think it's simply this. When we pour ourselves into the mold of this world, when we give ourselves to the passions of our former ignorance, every time we do it, It makes us a little bit more blind, a little bit more deaf, and a little bit more numb to the things of God, and we can no longer see God or discern His will. We become blind and deaf and numb to Him every single time we sin. It's kind of like being on a cliff perched over a lake that's just crystal clear. One of those kind of lakes where you can see all the way to the bottom no matter how deep it is. You can see the contours of the earth and the rocks and the weeds and the fish swimming around you can just see everything and then perched high above it you take a five gallon bucket of mud and throw it into the lake and it disperses over your sight your line of sight there and you begin to wonder to yourself why can't i see the bottom of the lake anymore well the reason you can't see the bottom of the lake anymore is because you just threw a bucket of mud in it And every time we let ourselves be conformed to the pattern of this world, it's like we throw a bucket of mud into the sky of our ability to see the glory of God and the beauty of God and His will for us. And so I think if we want to be the kind of people who will be able to discern the will of God, we simply must not allow ourselves to be conformed to this world because it muddies the sky of our minds. That's what it does. And so Paul is simply saying, be obedient and don't walk in the way that you used to walk. Number two, let's talk for a couple minutes now about what it means to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. The Greek word here for transformed is one of my favorite Greek words. It's the one from which we get our word metamorphosis. And it means to be radically changed, to be radically transformed, just as when a cocooned caterpillar turns into a butterfly. It has that kind of picture to it, and what, it, what it's about. This word is only used four times in the Bible. Twice it refers to the transfiguration of Jesus in Matthew seventeen two and Mark nine two. It's used here in Romans twelve two, and then finally it's used in Second Corinthians three eighteen, which may be familiar to you. We, we've referred to this quite a few times over the last couple months. But here's how that verse reads: "And we all, being those who are in Christ." We all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. I think the main lesson we learn from Romans 12.2 with regard to transformation is this, that the transformation of a life begins in the mind. Begins in the mind. Be transformed by the renewal of your what's? of your minds transformation begins in the mind as your mind is transformed your life follows this is the control center as it were and so he goes to the root of the matter and seeks to transform your control center that the rest of you might follow along and that's the main lesson i think we're learning from romans 12 2 the main lesson we learn from second corinthians three eighteen is that this transformation happens as we behold the glory of the Lord. Or as Paul said in a few verses down, as we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And the nature of the light of God as we behold it in the face of Christ is that it transforms whoever beholds it into the image of it, into the likeness of it. As you behold the glory of God in the face of Christ, there is a sort of metamorphosis that takes place. And you change from who you were into who you are. You change from one degree of glory to another, from darkness into light. And so I think the question becomes for us then, who are trying to discern the will of God, how do we behold the glory of God in the face of Christ? How does this happen? Most likely you won't go out into the woods today and see a visible manifestation of the glory of Jesus Christ. But the Bible's inviting you to behold His glory, so how does it happen? And there are many important answers to that question, but I want to share with you the one today that far outweighs them all. And that is this. We behold the glory of God in the face of Christ mainly by taking in and contemplating and applying the Word of God to our lives in that order. Intake, contemplation, and application of the Word of God are the main means by which we are transformed into His image and then by which we get the minds to discern the will of our Father. And the reason that this makes us able to discern the will of our Father is because in the Bible, we have learned to think our Father's thoughts after Him. By means of the Word of God... We have actually been metamorphosized, if you will, to become more like our Father and to think more like our Father. And therefore, it's just not such a mystery to us to figure out what our Father wants in the practical life situations that face us each day in our lives. I tried to discover this week, maybe one of you knows. I'd love to hear this if you know it after the service. But I tried to discover this week what the main chemical is that takes a caterpillar in a cocoon and transforms it into a butterfly. I would just love to know what that is, but I couldn't discover it. But whatever that chemical is, the analogous chemical in the life of a Christian person is the Word of God. As we are cocooned here with Jesus, so to speak, on this earth, the main thing that He's using to transform us into His likeness is the Word of God as we take it in and contemplate it and apply it to our lives by intake i'm referring to things like hearing the word of god taught and preached well at least once or twice a week and i'm talking about reading some portion of the bible every single day of your lives somehow if this chemical is the thing that's mainly transforming your mind somehow you got to get it in here And the only way I know to do that is to hear it and to read it. And even as a preacher, by the way, I listen to a couple sermons every week because I need to hear the Word of God preached, pouring through the soul of a person who is captured by the Word of God. So, that's what I mean by intake. By contemplation, I simply mean memorizing the Word of God on a regular basis. And I mean learning how to think deeply about what we're reading By application, I obviously mean just obeying the will of God in our own lives and then teaching it to others. Now, please listen to me carefully. Because I think that what I'm about to say is the key to this whole entire process. The key to beholding the glory of God in the face of Christ in the Bible is contemplation. You take contemplation out of that equation, intake, contemplation, application, You might learn some things, but you will not behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. You could listen to a sermon every single day of your lives. And in fact, maybe some of you put on KKMS and you hear 10 sermons every day of your life. I would encourage you to stop doing that. I'd encourage you to listen to less sermons and do more about the sermons that you hear. But you could listen to 10 sermons every day of your life. You could read 25 chapters of the Bible every single day of your life. And of course, that would have some effect on you. But if you don't learn to slow down and contemplate what you're hearing and reading and apply it to your life, I think you'll probably see very little transformation in your lives and you'll probably not have an easy time of coming to discern the will of God in your lives as well. Taking the Bible in, in one sense, is nothing more than just putting information into your minds. But to behold the glory of God in the face of Christ... We must take the time to think about that information. We just have to do it. We have to do it. We have to ask questions like these. If you're wondering, how do I contemplate? Take these questions and just ask them every time you read the Bible. What did the passage I read today say about God? What did it teach me about God? What did it say about me and who I am in Christ or if you're not in Christ? What did it say about the world? What did it say about the church? What did it command me to do? What did it command me not to do? What broader principles did it teach me? Why is it laid out in the order that it's laid out? What is the main point of this passage and why? And then maybe one of the most important questions you could ask at the end of your time, How should all I've learned today lead me to thank and worship my heavenly Father? It's been said that theology should always lead to doxology. And what that means is the study of the things of God ought always to lead us to the worship of God or we're just playing games, right? We're just playing Christian games. We're just playing philosophical or theological games. The study of the Bible, the study of doctrine was not meant just to fill your mind with information. It was meant to fill your heart with affection for God. And so theology ought always to lead to doxology. Friends, learning to ask questions like these and answer them well is the art of contemplation. It's no more complicated than that. And I'm telling you, that is the key to beholding the glory of God in the face of Christ in the Scriptures. It's the key. Now you could go home today and you could Google Christian contemplation and try to find some pattern, some book, some something to teach you more about it. I wouldn't recommend doing that because there's a lot of goofy stuff being taught about contemplation out there today. But contemplation is just not that complicated anyway. You don't need to read a book about it. You don't need to go to a class about it. You just need to apply what you already know. And I know that you know these things because, as I've said before, if you know how to worry, then you know how to contemplate. And let me see a show of hands. How many of you know how to worry? How many of you took a class on how to worry? You did? Wow, that's amazing. I'd like to hear about that. Not on the negative effects of worry, I mean how to worry. We don't, you're born knowing how to worry. You know how to think and think and think and think about something and then think about it some more. You know how to lose sleep because you're thinking about something so much. That's contemplation. It's just contemplation of positive things. Contemplation is simply thinking well about what we're hearing, about what we're reading, by learning to ask and answer really good questions like these, or you could ask many others as well. And I want to say once more, with all the passion I can muster, that this is the key to beholding the glory of God in the face of Christ through the Scripture. And if you don't learn how to contemplate, I don't have a lot of hope for you that you'll be able to see His glory here on the earth. So, with all of my heart, I urge you, learn the art of contemplation. If you seriously want to behold the glory of God and you're not playing games with that, you mean it. If you seriously want a transformed mind, if you seriously want to be able to discern the will of God in your lives, then here's my advice to you. Learn how to contemplate the Scripture. In fact, if your time is limited so that you cannot both read larger portions of the Bible and contemplate smaller portions of the Bible, then my advice to you, my counsel to you, would be to read less and contemplate more. If you have to make a choice, make the choice that way. Now, most of you know me well enough to know that I am not at all opposed to reading larger portions of the Bible. I read the Bible through every year of my life, and I encourage everyone that I know to do the same. 15, 20 minutes a day of reading, and you'll read the Bible through this year. I think you should do it. But, if you can't do both read the whole Bible through and contemplate smaller portions, then by far I would encourage you to contemplate on smaller portions because, as I said, that's the key to beholding His glory. It's the key to a transformed mind. And it's the key to being able to discern the will of God. This leads to the third and final insight from Romans. Number three, we ought not be conformed. We ought to be transformed. And then number three, to the end that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. The Greek word for testing here means just what the English word testing means. It means to weigh, to examine, or to prove something. And therefore, what I think Paul is trying to communicate to us through this clause is that discerning the will of God is not a matter of plugging variables into an equation that will always give you the answer that you're looking for. It's not a matter of taking a few simple steps that every single time will produce a certain outcome for you, that will produce a a certain surety of what God wants in a particular situation in your life. Rather, I think what Paul is trying to communicate to us is that discerning the will of God is a matter of rejecting the wisdom and the ways of this world do not be conformed it's a matter of submitting ourselves to the transforming power of the word of God that your minds be renewed and then it's a matter of using of utilizing our transformed minds to discover what our father is thinking about a given situation and i really do mean to put it that way Discerning the will of God is essentially discovering what our Father is thinking about a given situation. As I said earlier, we, His beloved children, are not simply seeking data from God. We are seeking God. We are seeking the heart of our Father and the mind of our Father, the good pleasures of our Father for any given situation because we know that He's good. We know that He loves us. We know He has our best in mind. And how I rejoice in the promise of Jesus Christ in Matthew 7, 9-11, where He says this, Which one of you, if you have a son that asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Which one of you would do that? Or if he asks him for a fish, and probably after this weekend there will be lots of sons asking for lots of fish, which one of you would give that son a serpent?" If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? When we, who are beloved children of God, honestly and earnestly ask our Father to reveal His will to us, He will answer that prayer every single time. That is not an exaggeration. When the children of God honestly and earnestly ask their father father reveal your will to me he will answer that prayer every single time in his time and in his way he may not reveal to us everything that we want him to reveal to us amen i bet you every one of you could come up here and tell of a situation where god gave you enough but maybe not all that you wanted he may not give it to us in our time and he hardly ever gives it to us in our way. He may cause us to work hard for it, and He may cause us to suffer in the process. But in the end, our loving, compassionate Father who considers us beloved and blessed in Him will cause us to know everything we need to know in His time and in His way. But more significantly, as I said earlier, along the way, what He will do with His children is forge a surer, deeper, more passionate, more loving, more authentic, more real relationship with you. He's not just trying to get information to us. He's trying to build a relationship with us. He's trying to build our faith and build our love and build our hope in Him. So let us not begrudge Him this. What I'm simply trying to say is that as we apply our Bible-saturated, transforming minds to testing and approving the will of God, He will reveal His will to us. But much more significantly, He'll build our relationship with Him. Now, I'm sure that all of this has been somewhat frustrating for some of you because you were probably hoping for a little bit clearer direction from me. Like, do this, do this, do this, do that. Out comes the will of God. Step one, step two, step three. Here comes, like kind of like a, a vending machine. And believe me, I would love to preach a sermon like that because in some ways life would just be so much easier if I knew, take step one, two, three, boom, I know exactly what God wants for me. But the Bible just doesn't talk about discerning God's will in those terms. And I have to be faithful to the Bible. The Bible teaches us that discerning the will of God is much less about completing a process And much more about seeking to know our Father as an end in itself. It's about seeking to develop our relationship with God. And as we come to know Him and who He is and who we are in Him, as we come to know His Word, our mind changes. And just bottom line, we just think more like God. We think more like Him. We think more like Him. And so the process and the outcome, as I said earlier, is profoundly relational. So with that, let me just close by repeating the words of Romans twelve two: Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray. Father, how I pray that you would help us to live in these things. And how I pray that You would cause this main lesson to land on us with great force and persuasiveness. That the main thing You're trying to do in calling us to understand Your will is to know You and the power of Your resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in Your sufferings. So help us, Lord, to be so consumed with a passion to know You that we will refuse to be conformed to the pattern of this world that we will be disciplined to be transformed by the renewal of our minds, and that we will apply these transforming minds to discerning Your will and Your ways in hundreds of situations that we face. Oh God, what I'm praying is come now, and on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, next Sunday, make these things real in our lives, Lord. Let this not just be a sermon that we hear and then just go about our lives, but change us, I pray. Transform us by the power of the Word of God in the presence of Jesus Christ. And I pray that as Steve comes now and leads us in a couple of closing songs, I pray that the truth of these things would just sink deeply into the soil of our hearts and minds. In the great and gracious name of Jesus Christ, Amen.